It was almost time for the Passover festival, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. found people selling cattle, sheep, and pigeons, and also the money changers sitting at their tables. and the cattle. He overturned the tables of the money changers and scattered their coins. He ordered those who sold pigeons. Take them out of here! Stop making my father's house a marketplace! His disciples remembered that the scripture says, My devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. Now, I know that you guys have already seen the passage that we're going to cover, but I need to confess something to you. That's actually not the passage we're looking at today. There are two passages that talk about Jesus driving people out of the temple, uh, or there's two accounts. This is actually the first time Jesus does this, and it's different than the passage we're looking at this morning. But I thought it would be helpful for you to see it because it's so visceral. It's, you get a sense of what's driving Jesus. In fact, that's really one of the questions I want to answer this morning is what's driving Jesus to do this? One of the things that the disciples notice in John chapter 2, he says, zeal for your house consumes me, or zeal for your house provokes me. It, can, it, makes, it makes me uh, angry in this particular sense. So <laughs> your sermon title is, But First, the Glory of God. And that really came about because of that, whole, that, that sign that you see at certain coffee shops, that But First coffee, and I thought, that's brilliant. I love a, a good cup of joe in the morning. But really what should characterize the life of the Christian is what But First uh, God's glory. That should be us. That should be the thing that moves us. And I, I would wager to you that this is what's driving Jesus. He's mad. He's flipping tables. He's angry. He, okay, so imagine this. You, you think about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, the meek Galilean, uh, wrapping a, a whip around his hand and then going about and smacking people with it. I would love to have been there. That'd have been really funny. I think. And, and, and one of the things that is, is interesting is that most of us would think about Jesus, not in those terms, but in the terms of in the terms of someone who's polite and you know, cordial and someone who's really gentle, and that he is. 
But in this case, he's furious. He's fire-breathing mad. What drives him? What's provoking him? And again, I think it's his passion for God's glory. So what would it look like then for us, if we were to take this seriously, to put God's glory first in our lives and not to make it a backseat or a secondary thought kind of situation? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So please turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 11. This is the last time we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark for 2019. We'll pick it back up sometime in January, maybe February, but this is the last time we're going to look at it. It's really a good stopping place because this is his Passion Week. It's a time that Jesus is just about to enter his crucifixion and his death. So what we're going to look at here is Mark chapter 11, verse 15. But before we jump into verse 15, I want to take you back just a few verses before that, starting actually at verse 12. Using our paper Bibles as page 796, let's get some context to what's happening here. It says this, On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. Remember, Bethany is the place where uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. And so he's probably hanging out with his friends there, spending the night. He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. When he said, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. I think, I don't know. Uh, I, I went to a restaurant one time and they didn't have the food that I wanted. And I got really mad too. So I said, May no one ever buy chicken from you again. That was different. I was, I was hangry, but Jesus is not hangry in this particular moment. He's coming from Bethany, looking at a fig tree and saying, oh, look, there's a fig tree and leaf. There's going to be some kind of fruit on it. Sure, not figs and full ripe and full bloom. Mark tells us that, but there should be something on it. And so Jesus, when he approaches the tree, is looking for one of these things. There's nodules on a fig, on a fig tree that, that is edible and delicious, and he had every expectation to see it there. Unfortunately, when he approached a tree, it was barren. It had no fruit. It only looked like it had fruit. And what he's doing by way of the tree is providing us an illustration. He's approaching a church, as it were. The church is busy. There's prayer meetings taking place. There's, there's preaching going on. There's hustle and bustle all around the building. But as he gets into the building, he soon realizes, oh, it just looks busy. There's no actual fruit in the life of the church. It just appears that way. He's using the fig tree to make this point. He's looking at the tree, says, you should have fruit, and then there's no fruit, and so he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, or may you never have fruit. Now, this is uh, the only time that Jesus performs a destructive miracle. You understand, a, a destructive miracle. This is the only time Jesus does this. Every other time, he's giving sight to the blind, he's giving the deaf hearing, but this is the only time that Jesus says, I'm going to literally destroy you. You're going to be uprooted, you're going to die, and, and that's the whole purpose. This is what the fig leaf tree is meant to is meant to illustrate. Um, and now we enter into our text itself with that in the background. So keep in mind, now he's about to enter the temple. This is the religious epicenter for all good Jews. He's going to the temple in order to see what looks like good fruit. It's busy. There's hustle and bustle, but take a look. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to do what? Drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He Excuse me. He overturned the temples of the uh, the tables rather tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Okay, 
So to give you a sense of what's happening here, Jesus sees the buying and the selling and the pigeons and, and people that are using the temple as a shortcut from one end of the place to the other. He's looking at this and saying, you look busy, you look fruitful, but this is all a travesty. I see extortion going on. I see people being abused. I see people being excluded because of your religious activity. And he's piping hot mad. This is one of the few times you can look at Jesus and see his anger dripping from his face. I don't know if it looked like that guy that was the raging lunatic on the screen, but I'm sure this was not a situation where Jesus was just like, oh, hey, oops, <laughs> can you please move? Jesus was mad. Jesus was angry, and he wasn't taking any prisoners. He was throwing stuff and getting people out of there, throwing pigeons out, and Jesus is angry. Now, again, think about the temple itself. Some of you may not know this, but there's actually three temples that are recorded in Scripture. The first temple is, does anyone know? Bible, Bible scholars? It's David's son, Solomon, that's right. So David wanted to build God a temple. God said no because he was a man of war, had too much blood on his hands. But he said, your son can do it. So David gets everything ready for King Solomon. King Solomon takes over. He builds God a temple in about the year 1000 BC, give or take. And so he erects his beautiful, amazing temple with all the lavish fixings. It's glorious. In fact, to give you a sense of the difference, the first temple, Solomon's temple, compared to the third temple, uh, Herod's temple, very different, much smaller in size. But at the time, it was a great thing. People were excited about that. Inside Solomon's temple had all the trappings of glory and honor. Gold laid, it was purple, I had purple curtains and all the beautiful trappings. You can read all about it in scripture. Solomon's temple was amazing. But we had a problem with Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed in what exile? Babylonian. So you have to remember, Israel's broken off into two pieces, right? Uh, you have King Rehoboam who makes this terrible mistake and breaks up Israel into two separate lands. You got Israel and you have Judah. Israel in the north, which, which included the majority of the tribes, Judah in the south. So at that point in time, uh, the northern tribes, Israel, is ransacked and exiled by the Assyrians. The southern tribe, Judah, is ransacked by the Babylonians. So they come over and they take over everything and they destroy Solomon's temple eventually. There's a lot that happens between there. But they destroy his temple. So they go into exile in Babylon for 70 years. At the end of that 70 years, the exiles make their way back into Judah, into Jerusalem, and they erect a new temple. This is the second temple. And this temple happens under the governor of Judah, who's named Zerubbabel. Good job. Who is that? Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel erects a temple, and there's a simultaneous cheer, like, all right, we have a temple again. And the old guys who have been around a while, they knew what the old temple looked like. They were weeping because it was like, oh, this is just a, this is just a shadow, uh, you know, a, a skeleton of what the former glory used to be. They keep that temple for a few hundred years. Now, King Herod comes along. Herod says, I want to do a favor for the Jews, and I want to erect a temple that bespeaks of God's glory. It's political maneuvering, to be sure, but he, put, he puts together this temple. This is now the third temple, which is really a refurbishment and a reconstruction of the second temple. The, the, this, this third temple by Herod is by far the most extravagant and most glorious of them all. It takes him about 83 years to put it together. In fact, he finishes construction of the temple in the year 67 AD. Pop quiz, Bible scholars, what happens in 70 AD? That's right. They, the, the temple is ransacked by Rome under Titus. Titus comes and he levels the temple. Jesus predicts this. He says, in this temple, not one stone will be left upon another. And 70, at 70 AD, after Jesus is dead, long dead by this point, 
and risen again. This temple is now demolished. But the irony about it is it's actually not finished. At the time of Jesus, the temple wasn't finished until 70 AD. Right now, at this point in time, it's about 33, 30, 33 AD, maybe even as much as 35. But the temple is still being under construction. This is the temple. Notice it here. Uh, you got the courtyard of the Gentiles at the very front here, and then you have the, uh, the, the women's courtyard. So courtyard of the Gentiles, women's courtyard, and then all good Jews can go here. Well, not not all the way in. The Holy of Holies was, was reserved for one particular guy, but the Jews themselves were the only ones who could go into the temple grounds. In fact, you'll notice the wall that surrounds this place here, that wall had signs at various intervals that said, if you enter this temple and you're not a Jew, your death is on your own head. Summarizing for you. So the Gentiles could only stand at the, on the outside looking in. This is what was going on here. So this is the temple that Herod constructed. This is where all religious sacrificing took places, where all good Jews would go to spend time uh, meditating, thinking upon the Lord. Now, this is just one little piece of it. And if you'll notice at the top of the, the graphic there, it says the American football field is you know, small by comparison to this massive temple grounds. Well, it's even bigger than this. This is the temple, uh, the temple but look at the temple mount. It's huge. And that, that vast space surrounding the temple is the place where all of the Gentiles would go. Again, Gentiles can't go inside. They could stay on the outside, though. So when Jesus comes into the temple, it's all this space here that's being used to buy and sell. And some people thought they were cute. They were going to go through the temple to go from one side to the other. They're just passing through. They're not there to worship. They're just there to use it as a shortcut, crosswalk maybe, in order to get from where they're going to where they wanted to be. So Jesus comes in, he sees it's busy. Now you might think to yourself, with so much space though, is it really that much of an obstruction to those who wanted to go to the temple? Jesus would say yes. In fact, the Jewish scholar and, and, and historian jo Josephus said that this temple was so busy and it had so much going on that for one particular Passover, they sold 225,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep, which tells me there's a lot of activity going on here. And when Jesus comes in, he sees the activity, notices what's happening, he gets mad, he spits flames, and now he's saying, get out of here, clear the area. Why? Well, the first and foremost reason I think that Jesus is angry is that he knows that his father's honor is on the line. He's coming in, he sees all this activity taking place, and he says, no, not in my father's house. Not in my father's house. This is, this is supposed to be a place that is dedicated to God's glory and that alone. You shouldn't be selling stuff and extorting your brothers in this area. Point number one, as we look at Jesus' example, we really ought to do the same in our lives, stoking our passion for God's glory. Jesus was able to get angry, righteously so, and do something about it. Our passion is often so, so small that we were barely even able to speak up for those things that are right. Jesus says we ought to stoke our passion. Well, I'm saying based on Jesus' activity, we ought to stoke our passion. Often it's not something that just shows up. I don't know for you guys if you ever had the experience of learning to love something only after you've worked really hard for it. Uh, being in football, I wasn't a football guy. I, I did do football uh, because I thought I'd probably get a girlfriend this way and it was cool. All, all people would like me. So I did it for the wrong reasons. I'm okay to admit that. I'm not doing that anymore. I did football. I hated it. Hated Hell Week. I hated the practices. I hated that in, in the football, they don't tell you like what, what position does what. They assume that you know. I didn't know. I didn't grow up in a home where people were watching football or whatever else. So I had to learn stuff on the fly. And so the coach is calling plays and saying, this person needs to do that. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> tell me what to do. I don't know what you're saying. It was horrible. I hated it. But as seasons went on, I grew to love it. I grew to love the work. I grew to love, I made a good play every now and then. I grew to love what I had previously not had any passion for. 
The same thing is kind of true in our spiritual lives in that uh, when God saves you, you may not be as passionate as you would like to be or perhaps even as you should be. But as you begin to throw logs in the flame of your devotion to God, God begins to grow what is small inside you and make it bigger. But it takes work on your side. Kind of like the work that Laszlo Polgar put his young daughters through. He was a Hungarian teacher and a psychologist who had this crazy idea that innate talent means nothing. He said, give me anybody with no, little to no innate talent and I will make them a genius. That was his bold claim. At the time that he said that, everyone thought he was bonkers. And so, like a good Hungarian, he thought, you know what, I'll prove to all y'all haters. Let me find a woman who will have some kids with me and then we'll go and make them geniuses. And so he went to the local, uh, you know, the, the, whatever was the Tinder app or whatever in his day and age. And he said, I'm going to find me a gal. And so he was honest. He said, here's what I want to do. He was looking for a woman. And guess what? Some gal said, okay, let's give it a shot. So he marries this woman. Laszlo Polgar has three daughters. The first daughter he begins to work on. And he says, you know, how, how can we do this best? Let's find something that people can't deny at all. So he picks chess of all things. He could have picked painting or, you know, science or whatever. He says, all that other stuff is hard. Chess, there's, there's ways that you can measure it. You know, tournaments and whether you become a grandmaster, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he, he starts training his daughters in chess early on. The first daughter, she's, she's four years old when she begins her training. <coughs> Excuse me. Within six months, she's beating adults. Four years old, that'd be humiliating. Wouldn't that not? You're playing against a four-year-old. It's like, oh, I make my flip my own table. That's angry. And so he, he trains her, and then suddenly his critics say, okay, well, p- p- maybe, maybe. But she's your first daughter, and perhaps, by luck of the draw, she just happened to be good at that. She's a child prodigy. And so he says, okay, fine. So he has another daughter and another daughter, three in total. He does the same thing for all of them. He puts up chess, uh, posters of chess masters. He puts pieces all around the house. He's stoking their passion for this. He's talking about the legends of chess and he's highlighting their virtues. He does everything in his power to make sure that they loved and esteemed chess players. And what do you think happened? As he trained them and as he grew them to love chess players, they became chess masters themselves, beating adults. In fact, one of the girls, I forget which of the sisters, was one of the youngest grandmasters ever beating that other guy who had that movie made about him. In fact, for one of his daughters, Sophia, uh, it was late at night. He's woken up. He sees his daughter uh, in the bathroom. And he says, Sophia, leave the pieces alone. She's in the bathroom playing chess in the middle of the night. Sophia, go to bed. Stop playing with chess pieces. And she says, Daddy, they won't leave me alone. (laughs) These girls became obsessed, passionate about chess. But were they born with that? No. No. Their father cultivated it. And I would submit to you that the way that we approach God's glory is similar, although not one-to-one. We cultivate passion for God's glory. We throw logs in the fire, as it were, to grow our passion, to grow our love for God, to grow our love for his glory and honor. One of those logs that you can throw in your fire is the undefiled and authentic worship that should characterize Christians. Only a Christian can truly love and worship God. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would encourage you to become one. Because what Jesus says in John chapter 4 is that the Spirit is the one who has to indwell the believer in order for us to offer right worship to God. The God who made you, the God who called you to this church, the God who put you in the seat that you're in right now, is the same God who says he's seeking worshipers like you to honor him and to love him. But he says there's two qualifiers, two conditions by which that love takes place. And he says here that one of those conditions is the spirit. The spirit of God has to indwell you, to change you, to make you love God. I can understand that for some of you in here, maybe your parents made you come. And so all of the things that I'm talking about right here are just like uh, over my head, don't care, don't want this. And I understand 
understand that because the spirit of God is not within you. God's spirit has to draw you to himself to make you love what he loves. And we'll talk more about that. The second qualifier, the second characteristic here, you'll see it. It's, it's those who worship God in verse 23, worship him in spirit and truth. It's got to be something that's built upon the truth of God's word. It's got to be something that isn't, uh, isn't cajoled out of you. It's something that is birthed from knowing the truth by God's spirit that's directed to God's glory and honor. How many of you guys know the Pledge of Allegiance? Anyone? No one in here? Okay, ready? Here we go. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. Amen. Now, if I, if I were a gambling man, and I'm not, I would guess that you've said that probably a thousand times, and more than half of those times, you're not paying attention to, to the Pledge of Allegiance, right? You're not thinking about your loyalty to the country. You're not imagining Donald Trump in your mind and saying, God bless America. You're not imagining the, the American flag waving in the air and fireworks, the, the, the War of 1812, or that, what's, is that the dun 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 Is that the, the song? The 1812 Overture. No, that's not Russia. I disagree. I disagree. That's not my truth. Okay, so <laughs> just kidding. Kidding. We can't approach worship that way. We can't just say, oh, okay, I pledge allegiance to the God. Of the... That, that's the wrong way. And Jesus, when he comes across to the temple and sees people hustling and bustling, it looks good, but there's no real passion for God's glory there. It's simply a facade. It's mechanical. It's only meant to be done in ritual, and, and, and it's, it's hypocritical. It's in, inauthentic. The kind of worship that should characterize us is the worship that God is looking for. It should be authentic, spirit-led, truth-based. The first passion log is undefiled and authentic worship, which is what Jesus did not see. The second passion log is something that's going to rock your world. Let's talk, let's talk about jealousy for God's honor. That word jealousy has a negative connotation. If, you, if you're a girl and you see your boyfriend flirting with another girl, you might be jealous. Oh, well, what is he doing talking to her? Or, fellows, if you see the girl that you're really into talking to a guy that you think is a threat, you might be jealous in your heart. Like, Why is she talking to him? I don't care that he has six-pack. I got a six-pack, too. You know? you're, you're jealous for that girl. You're jealous. Jealousy is a negative thing. In fact, when we talk about it, we say jealousy is something you should avoid and not encourage. But in this case, in a spiritual sense, there is a right jealousy that should characterize Christians. And in fact, the text I want you to go to is in Numbers chapter 25. I don't have it on the screen for you. I want you to go there and read it with me, please. Numbers 25, starting at verse 1. It's a story that we don't often look at, but it's a story that you should read again and realize what God is honored by, how God thinks about our jealousy for his honor honor and glory. Jesus comes to the temple. He sees his father's honor not being, uh, not being esteemed and, and upheld, and he gets angry. You're, you're, you're giving my father a bad name. In middle school, one of the areas that the lines that you did, you did not cross was the line called the yo mama joke. You don't make fun of a guy's mama. You don't say things like yo mama. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to say anything. You don't say things about a guy's mama. And I found that no matter who the guy is, you start making fun of his mama, that dude's going to fight. <laughs> it's just the way we're built. Men, you should esteem your mother. So if a guy is talking about your mom, you're like, no, you don't talk about my mom that way. Right? Don't be talking about my mama. And so you stand up for your mom's honor. And I found out the hard way that most anybody 
who's got his head on right, is going to defend his mom's honor. That's probably the closest thing we have in a human sense for the kind, of, uh, the kind of jealousy we should have for God's honor. When someone starts talking poorly about God or using Jesus' name as a cuss word, there should be something inside of us that says, ah, I hate that. Don't talk about my God that way. Why can't we use Muhammad's name instead? Why can't we use Krishna? Why can't we use Buddha? Why has it got to be Jesus? Why is his name the one that's used poorly? Well, when someone's name is besmirched and dishonored, someone that you care about and love, there ought to be a right response in you that says, I want to do something about that. To the point that we have a story uh, in the scriptures, in Numbers 25, of a guy by the name of Phineas, who's upheld as a, as a virtuous man who cares about God's honor and glory. Please read it with me. Starting in Numbers 25, verse 1. This is page number 125 in our paper Bibles. Dark time in Israel's history. Here's what it says. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Okay, Israel's on the move right now. They're on the way to the promised land. Uh, Moses is still leading them. God told them, hey, don't, in fact, okay, just before this, you have Balaam's donkey. Uh, the Balaam, Balaam situation, prophet for hire. Um, the, Mo, the Moabites and the Midianites hire Balaam to curse Israel. And they find out that Balaam can't do that because God controls his speech. And so now the, the Moabites and the Midianites are saying, okay, if we can't win them this way, let's see if we can undermine their religion by giving them our ladies. In fact, by drawing them to our religion. That's what's happening here. So they, the pe people began to whore with the, the daughters of Moab, which is to say they're having sexual relations with them. And it's not only that, those sexual relations are more like a prostitution kind of, uh, a prostitution kind of relationship because it's part of their religious cult. The men would come and hang out with these girls, you know, to use a euphemism, they're hanging out with these girls in order to commune with their God. Are we on the same page? Okay, that's what's happening. Verse two, these invited the people to the sacrifice, to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And it is Israel now, God's people are now worshiping Baal. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God is rightly angry because they're re rejecting him in favor of Baal. And the Lord said to Moses, and here's where it gets sketchy. Here's where it's hard. Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Kill the leaders of the people. They're allowing this to happen. Therefore, they will be punished. As a, and not only because they're the ones who allowed it, but also as an example to anyone else who would decide to go after Baal. You guys need to see this. Verse five. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Verse six. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay, get the picture. God has just judged Israel by slaughtering thousands of people, 23, 24,000 people. And instead of everyone weeping and feeling sorry for what's happened, this guy, this Israel, Israelite dude, takes this Midianite woman with his arm around her, I can imagine, strutting to his tent, about to look at everyone in the eye like, yeah, you're crying, but look what I'm about to do. Takes her to his tent and begins to do what they do. God, God, <laughs> if I were God, I would have crushed him immediately. God didn't do that. God didn't do that. But in the sight of all Israel, he's boasting about his sin. Verse seven, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose 
left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman threw her belly. Thus, the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now think about that. Phineas spears both of them through the belly. How would that physically take place? Is he going to have, stand up, let me spear you. No, it's far more likely that when Phineas came upon them, he goes into the tent looking at them, and they're both butt naked doing their thing. He spears them through. Now, how does God feel about this? Does God say to Phineas, oh, Phineas, you shouldn't be doing this. You're too, you're too trigger happy. You should calm down. Let's reason with these people. Let's slow our roll and let's talk this out. Let's have some conflict resolution here. Doesn't do that. In fact, look at verse 10. Numbers 25, verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 11, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. He is held up as a virtuous man because he was jealous for God's honor. He was jealous for God's glory to the point that he was willing to stop at nothing in order that Israel would go return back to her God. God commends Phineas. And this is a hard passage for us. I grant you that. I don't want you guys to start spearing people. Please don't do that. But I do want you to see that God commends him. Why? Because he was jealous with my jealousy, God says. Calvin once said, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. I think one of the things we ought to learn here is that we should have a pure worship toward God and have a jealousy for his name and his honor. That's what it looks like to stoke our passion for God's glory. That's not the only reason Jesus is angry though. There's another reason. Jesus is also angry, and he'll find out why as he quotes scripture. Mark eleven, seventeen. Jesus goes in, flips tables around, and now he's teaching them. He's saying things to them. And the only thing that Mark records is this one salient point. He says, Is it not written, My house, my temple, shall be called a house, a temple of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus calls out the fact that there's extortion taking place. At this point in history, you have the Passover. Everyone from all over, every good Jew is going to make their way to the temple to offer sacrifices. This is one of the, the feasts that every Jew was commanded to come to. And so uh, often, if they're going to bring their own animals, that'd be a lot of work. But they might come to the temple and say, I'll just purchase the animals to offer a sacrifice on our behalf. That's fine. God didn't say no to that. But what would happen is as they made their way into the temple grounds, their brothers, their fellow Jews, were extorting them. A pigeon that would be $1 is now $5. It's like going to the movie theater. You buy a bucket of popcorn and a soda, it's like $800. So in the same way, they go to the temple and they're trying to get a bu bucket of popcorn and it's the same extortion. They're being taken advantage of by their fellow brothers. He says, you're making this place a den of robbers. How dare you? And how dare you do that in the name of God on my temple grounds? But that's not what I want to focus on because we've already talked about that briefly. What I want to point your attention to is what he quotes here. He says, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer? And get this, for all the nations, 
One of the things that drives Jesus' passion, his anger, his desire to, to, be, to be just in his retribution is a desire to see the nations draw near to God. Do you remember? I told you, they're, they're crowding up which area of the temple? Court of the Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. You're an ethnos. You're one of the ethnicities that God has designed that is not Jewish in nature. This is the only place I told you that, it, that it, uh, a Gentile could go. And therefore, while the Jews were selling their wares and, and letting through traffic come on through, they were blocking anyone who had a true faith in Yahweh from drawing near to him. Jesus is angry about that. He steps in and says, you guys are making it impossible for the nations to draw near to God, and that angers me. Are you, do you have the same love that God has for those who he has called to himself? Do you love the nations? Let's put that like that. Point number two, share God's love for the nations. Do you love the people that God has commanded you to love, who's called you to love? It's one thing to say that you're a Christian and to bear a resemblance of Christian, to go to church, to say God bless you, to you know, offer a prayer when someone's sick. It's a whole other thing to reflect God's love, to reflect his nature. Superficial, superficial resemblance is, is cool. It's funny in a lot of places. Like you can tell when a family's related, right? You can really tell. <laughs> some, some families like, oh, you're totally related. Even in this room, you know, some of you guys, I see your siblings, I'm like, you're totally related. I see that very obviously. You know you look a lot alike when face swap doesn't look any different. You know, <laughs> face swap happens. Like, oh, did it, did it work? I think so. You can't tell because we look so alike. There's even studies that show that when you get married, you will likely start looking like your spouse. It's crazy. They're not brother and sister. <laughs> They're husband and wife. There's a lot of reasons why they say that. One of the things that you're attracted to people that look similar to you and have similar lineage. Another reason is they say that mirror neurons make you respond with similar facial features when you and your spouse spend a lot of time together. So as you spend uh, and considerably more and more time together as a husband and a wife and a family, you start doing the same things. You have similar vocal inflections. You have similar facial features because you're making the same faces at each other. It's phenomenal. Interesting. But that's not the point here. It's easy to have a superficial uh, similarity or resemblance to somebody, but really what we're looking for is the kind of deep-hearted fruit that Jesus wants us to have. Jesus, in fact, said, everyone who is trained will be like his teacher. So let's look at our fig tree, so to speak, and let's see if we have the same fruit that Jesus expects of us to have. First of all, do you love what God loves? Do you love what God loves? In fact, it's less of a what and more of a who. Do you love who God loves or are you more characterized by a selfishness? We talked about that last week. Are you more concerned for your glory and honor and not the glory and honor of God by loving people that he has called us to love? God is the very first missionary. God is the very first one who made it clear that he cares about the lost, as should we. Jesus quotes the text, Isaiah 55, excuse me, Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. Here's what Yahweh says. He says, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be a servant, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. God is passionate to see the nations drawn near to him. 
This would have stunned the Jews because in their minds, they were thinking that the Messiah would actually come and rid the temple of Gentiles. In this case, Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to draw the Gentiles near as per my father's wishes in Isaiah chapter 56. Psalm 67 is another place where God's love for the nations is made clear. I want you to pay attention to this. They say, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make us, uh, make his face to shine upon us. They're asking for God's blessing. Why? That your way, Yahweh, may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. In other words, God bless us so we can be a blessing to other people. Now, let me ask you this. Has God not blessed you? Has he not been so kind to you? Wealth and prestige and honor and position. Your bellies are full. You're healthy. You have everything you could possibly want for the most part. And God is now showing us by this text. Now, one of the reasons that he blesses his people is that we might be a, a, a pillar, a light for the nations to look at. For God to say, those are my people. And he expects his people to, be, to, to use their blessing in order to be a blessing to other people. What better way to do that than by loving them, sharing the gospel with them? Verse three, let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity. Guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Again, the whole purpose here is to be, God blesses them to be a blessing to others. Do you love what God loves? Do you share the sim a similar passion for people that are lost? people that are sitting next to you that don't know Christ, for people that are at your school who don't know Christ, for people that you're going to see this Thursday at your family gathering who don't know Christ. Do you love the nations the way God does? We ought to love who God loves. What if you don't love what God loves? Well, let me give you just four quick responses of that. If you don't love what God loves, you need to repent of your cold-hearted indifference. As people drown in front of you, and their gurgles make their way to the surface of the water, and you smile in their face and say, God bless you, you ought to repent of that. Your cold-hearted indifference to those who are perishing is evidence of a heart that needs to be broken and softened for God's glory. You need to receive God's full forgiveness in Christ. If you don't love the pe people the way you should, I know what that feels like. What we do is we turn to Christ and we say, God, please forgive me. Soften my heart. And then realize that God offers full forgiveness in Christ. 1 John 1, 9, if anyone confesses their sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Three, pray for a renewed love for people. Beg God to give you the heart that you should have. You know this. You know you should love people. This is not brand new to you. You know that you should love people. And yet, I can tell you, based on experience, you still struggle with this. I can see it. You want to love them. You know you should love them, but it's not there. That's because God needs to work in your heart. It's one thing to say that a tree is fruitful and to have a bunch of plastic fruit hanging from the branches. It's a whole other when there's real, vibrant life taking place in the tree. You don't put plastic fruit on your tree. That plastic stuff is gross anyway. I don't know why anyone would have that. Don't take the plastic fruit and try to hang it on a tree and make it look like a real tree. The real tree is birthed by fruit that comes from the inside. There's a source of power and strength inside the tree that makes it productive. That source and that strength is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to birth the fruit in you. That means you're, you're letting the Spirit work in you. You're laboring for this, which looks like this, by the way. As you're looking to Jesus, you begin to act upon that love before you feel it. If you don't have the love for God and what God loves that you want to have, 
It means, okay, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. I'm going to look to him, and I'm going to start acting out love even before I even feel it. Your feelings are like a puppy dog, right? Uh, they're, 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 they're making a mess in your life. They're peeing all over the rug. They're this way one day. They're that way another day. It takes a long time to train them. But let me tell you this. When you're leading your feelings and you're telling your feelings, this is what we're going to do. I don't care what you feel like. That's when the feelings are best. They're best when they're the caboose and not the engine. Looking to Jesus, begin to act upon that love before you feel it. Do you love what God loves? If you don't, you have a solution now. Now, secondly, do you do what God does? There's two verses that talk about Jesus' mission. It's popular to talk about a mission statement. What is Jesus' mission? There's two verses. Do you, love what, do you do what God does? Two verses to look at, and it's Mark 10, 45. We looked at it last week, and Luke 19, 10. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Are you seeking? We talk about being a seeker-friendly church. Well, biblically speaking, there's only one seeker. His name is God. He's the one seeking. Are you partnering with him for this? When's the last time you've opened your mouth to talk to someone about the Christ that you claim to serve? If I were to ask you in this room, who do you, who do you admire and respect and esteem? I did this yesterday with the student ministers, and they talked about Spielberg and some skier and some people that they admired and respect. It's, it's the kind of thing where if I give you an opportunity to talk about this person, you're going to gush because you love them, you admire them, you know their work, or whatever it is. Maybe your parents, maybe the uncle that you're going to see on Thursday. You, you're not going to struggle for words with this because you love them. You esteem, you admire them. Your love for Christ ought to be the same except exponentially greater. When I pick you with a, with a pin... You want to bleed love for Christ. And like Christ, seek and save the lost. Christ did the salvation, but he wants to use you. He didn't save you so you could sit on the couch and twiddle your thumbs. He saved us so we can partner with him to see people one to faith in Christ. There's a song by Keith Green. It goes like this. Do you see? Do you see? Do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? He says, how can you be so numb? Not to care if they come. You close your eyes and pretend the job is done. Oh, bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. You know it's all I ever hear. No one aches. No one hurts. No one even sheds a tear. But he cries. He weeps. He bleeds. And he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. If you don't know who Keith Green is, go download his work and just listen. And he's amazing. He's probably not the music you would prefer, but his lyrics are killer good. They're very painful in, in many cases, but it's great stuff. This is the kind of heart we ought to have because God's heart is there. God loves the nations. You ought to as well. We ought to as a ministry. This last thing, if you take anything that I'm saying seriously, sharing a passion for God's glory, uh, stoking your passion for God's glory and sharing his love for the nations, you're going to have a life similar to Jesus. Look at what happens when he does this. Chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus stirs a commotion. Chief priests and the scribes say, great, we'll just simply kill you. Uh, we'll finish you off. Right? In fact, this is the event that leads to his crucifixion a few days later. But some of the people were astonished. They were excited about what Jesus was saying, at least for now. This same crowd, by the way, a few chapters later are going to yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But at least right now, they're happy with him. 
They're excited by him. Jesus realizes this is a tense moment, and so he leaves the city. Jesus' life is a very polarizing life, and if you follow Jesus, you're going to have the same kind of life, a polarizing life. That's what you ought to expect. Point number three, expect your life to be polarizing. Polarizing means to divide something into two sharply contrasting groups, Republicans, Democrats. That's a polarizing, uh, polarizing people. People who sing Christmas music in January and February versus those who only sing it after Thanksgiving. Very polarizing group there. There's a lot of things in our life that polarize us. Like what's the right way to load a dishwasher? That's polarizing. Creates wars in families. Or maybe you're one of those weirdos that squeeze the, squeeze the two from the middle. There's one third of you people that do that. <laughs> you people anger me. I think, at, <laughs> I think Kristen and I actually did have a conversation about which one of these was right early in our marriage. <laughs> and if you do this, I will come after you. If you put the carton back in the refrigerator with like one centimeter left of milk, I will come after you. Don't test me. Expect your life to be polarized. No, don't te- please don't test me. I don't want to. I'm happy. Thank you. Your life is going to be polarizing in a lot of ways like those things are polarizing, but far worse. Your life is going to be polarizing because you're going to be bold with the truth. You're going to be saying things that people are not going to agree with, and you're going to expect them to respond poorly, just like they did with Jesus. Did Jesus say anything that was untrue? Of course not. And yet the scribes and the chief priests are saying, we're going to take you out. We're going to destroy you. Being bold of the truth is not necessarily wearing a shirt like this. It's not saying, oh, virginity rocks, I'm standing up for truth. Or, I mean, hey, if that's your thing, I think, you should, I think you should find a better thing, honestly. But if that's your thing, then okay. Virginity rocks, it's, it's, I guess it's true, but it's more of an antagonistic shirt than it is something that communicates a deeply held value that is formed from conviction. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm more talking about something like this, where you have a friend who says this. I recently found out that my brother's doing drugs, acid shrooms. They're two years, uh, we are two years apart. We both grew up in the same Christian household, even though he's in college and has, has the right to make his own decisions. Should I tell my parents, and who should I talk to about this? Here, here, here's my short answer. Definitely tell your parents. Talk to them about this. If you want to talk to your pastor, I'm happy to talk to, to you as well. But your love for him is that you want to warn him. Your love for him means you're going to expose his darkness. Expose him to the light, which means telling your parents who are likely supporting him in college, I would imagine, in some way, which means he's still responsible to them, even if he's technically an adult and technically by himself. Your respect for your parents is going to make you say, I want my parents to know. Your respect for authorities, because it's illegal, is going to make sure that you expose him. Your respect and love for him is going to say, I care about you so much, brother, that I don't want to see you destroy your life. And yeah, shrooms and acid, terrible. But your bigger issue is that you are at odds with God who calls you out of darkness into his glorious light. Do you think your brother's going to be happy with you when he finds out that you snitched on him? I love you, bro. I'm going to do, and I know you're not going to like me, but I love you enough to tell the truth, to be bold with the truth. Ephesians 4 tells us to speak the truth in love. I don't want you this, this Thursday to be a jerk at the, at the Thanksgiving table. I don't want you to start provoking conversations that are meant just to invoke rage culture. My, my, my desire is that you're bold with the truth and at the same time you're loving with it. You don't have to be a jerk to say you're in sin and you're on your way to hell. 
If you're not trembling as you say that, or at least aware of your own weakness as you say that, you're doing it wrong. Being bold of the truth is what Jesus did. We talked about the vaping. You think if you call your friend out and say, hey, your problem is not vaping. Your problem is that you're at odds with Christ. She's going to be happy with you? Of course not. Being bold of the truth is our first command, but also standing up and fighting for what's right. We talk about tolerance, and yet we want to want to kick out Christians from the public square. We talk about uh, social justice, a woman's right to choose. Well, what about the woman in the belly? <laughs> we talk about social justice and there being e- equity of privilege and equity of, uh, of wealth. Okay, let, let's, let's just get honest here for a second. Then what about the baby? Does the baby get an equal choice? <laughs> if we're going to at least say we're social justice warriors, should we not least be consistent with what we say? A lot of people your age are pro ab- Pro-choice is how they would say it, pro-choicers. A woman should have the right to choose. And I agree, a woman should have the right to choose to say no to premarital sex. Sex is what's going to lead to having a baby. Therefore, don't have sex if you don't want to have a baby. Okay, you're going to ask, what about rape? And what about situations like that? And we we can talk about that. We can talk about that. But that's not my point right now. My point is saying fighting for what's right. If you live during the Holocaust, while Jews are being incinerated or gassed to death. Gypsies, Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, there's a lot of people, uh, homosexuals, all of those people. They're all thrown into the gas chamber. They're all sent to the concentration camps, 11 million of them. And you were in Nazi Germany, and you're, you're, in, you're, you're a German. Would you not have the conviction to stand up for that? I hope so. We, we'd all hope so, wouldn't we? And yet, there's so much injustice going, around, going on around us today, and we're just sitting back and saying, well, hey, as long as it doesn't hurt me and my people, Oh, shame on us as a culture, as a nation. Lord, have mercy on us. I'm not saying you ought to blow up an abortion clinic. I'm not saying you ought to start knocking over shelves in the bookstore. I'm not saying you start whipping people. What I am saying is that there ought to be a conviction for truth because you love God. Our love for the truth is born out of a love for God that allows us to speak into a culture with relevance and with compassion, aware that we love them we're not angry at the unbeliever. We're, we love the unbeliever. And even if the unbeliever begins to persecute you and punch you or kill you or want to do things to you in order to make you deny Christ, so be it. You know why? Because my life is hidden with Christ in God. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Take my body. Take my money. Take my house. Take my car. It doesn't matter. My life belongs to Christ now. It's not about me. It's about him. That's what it means to live for God's glory, his honor, and his passion. A few verses later, in fact, the very next section, it says here, as they passed in the morning, they saw that the fig tree was withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, hey, Rabbi, Jesus, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. That was a taste of what would happen again in AD 70 when Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed. And that's exactly what took place. The fig tree is an analogy and an illustration of that. But like Jesus, we ought to be characterized by a jealous passion for God's glory and a great concern for the lost. Let's pray that we would have that.